County, they're in Wrightsville Beach. There are leash laws for these such things. Uh, but it's another reason. It's not just to control something dangerous. It's also to control something we want to possess. We want to keep close to ourselves. For example, if you're surfing and you let your surfboard go without a leash, you have to swim all the way back to shore, get your surfboard and come all the way back to pain. If you have a dog and your dog is unleashed, no one knows where your dog's going to end up. And therefore, no one knows where you're going to end up, the owner of the dog. Well, it's the same idea that Peter has about the gospel before Acts chapter 9. In fact, in Acts chapter 1 through 7, that's how Peter thinks about the gospel, that it's leashed to him. And it's a scary thought for Peter to see the gospel Unleashed because he doesn't quite know where it's going to take him. Notice it's not going to go anywhere without Peter. He's going to go too, but he doesn't know where he's going to go. So Acts 10 is the story of God helping Peter unleash the gospel. Before we look at that, we're going to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail. And the rabbit trail is this. Let me ask a question. Why do we have such a hard time reading the Bible? In our personal devotions, why is it that we have such a difficult time? Part of the answer could be that the language is maybe archaic if you're reading an older Bible. Could be that your sins are keeping you from the Bible. It could be that you just don't like reading, that if the Bible were a video, you'd be on, you'd be all right for a video game. But you just don't like the medium of reading. But let me give you an answer that, that was true for me, and it might be true for you. The reason I had such a hard time was was because I didn't see the pattern of Scripture. And if you don't see the pattern of Scripture, you read the Bible, you come to a passage, and you don't quite know what to do with it. You need somebody else to explain it to you, to, to mine the gems that are buried so deep within the text. But... If you can see the patterns of Scripture, the way that it works from beginning to end, it'll, it'll go a long way in helping you understand what the Bible is trying to tell you. Therefore, you'll be excited about it. I once thought about uh, the Bible is to the believer as maybe a drug is to an addict. We, re or we should reorient our whole life, an addict reorients their whole life to get to the next high once they experience that high they just everything is about that from that point on and i wonder if we can achieve the same thing with the bible that, that we could just reorient our life to get into the scriptures and to spend time and to hunger and thirst after it like david in psalm 119 in verse 20 he says my soul is consumed with longing for your laws all times. When I read that, I just had to, I had to laugh a little bit. That's just not me. My soul is consumed with longing for your law at all times. Not really. Or in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey is to my mouth. Do any of us think about God's word that way? Well, the pattern of scripture. Let me let me tell you what I'm talking about when I say that. Remember how confusing it was when you first drove a car and there were all those buttons on the dashboard, levers, pulleys, things that just were like, this is just too much. 
Why was it so confusing to you as a new driver? Because they were new. You didn't know what they did. But if I sit down in my car today, I mean, I don't even have to look at the buttons. I can just go like this. I could be driving down the road and just boop, 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 turn on the lights, you know, what, turn on the whatever. Because they're all in a place that I understand. Now, if I buy a new car, there is going to be a learning curve. But new car owner or new car makers know better than to change everything in the dashboard. Right? The window levers are all sort of there. The shifters are all kind of in one or two places. Turn on the lights are usually right there. Blinkers are always over. You know, they're just kind of spread out in a way that's intuitive so that you can sit down in a new car and understand it. That's how Bible passages are. If you kind of know one, you get to know the others. And there is a little bit of difference. But here's what I'm talking about. There's always a surprise when you come to a passage. When you come to a passage, there's always something that's unexpected, that's surprising, that, that isn't normal. And when you see that, don't, don't move on. Stop there and ask the question, what's going on here? Because this is one of God's favorite ways to teach us. To show us something shocking and then explain why he presented it that way in the passage. So just like the car window switches are the same in almost every car. So in every biblical passage, you can usually find a surprise. Now, there are lots of surprises you can think about in the Bible. Positive surprises like Israel is saved from famine by Joseph who was sold into slavery. There's a number of surprises there. Or Israel defeats Egypt and is set free. David wins Goliath. Jesus, risen from the dead. But there are also surprises that you ought to notice that are not positive. They're negative. They're what we call disappointments. Like Israel becoming a slave nation. Or Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years before they come into the promised land. Or Israel being exiled to Babylon. Or Jesus didn't save Israel from Rome. One of Peter's surprises. Or Jesus dying. Imagine the astonishment of Jesus Christ dying. Especially if you knew who he was. So here in Acts 10 we see this gospel is unleashed in a surprising way. And, and how do we see this surprise? We focus on one thing in Acts 10, a specific conversion. Cornelius' conversion. And there are many surprises that come about from this passage. And I'm going to mention a few this morning. First, let's look at the surprising source of this conversion. The surprising source of this conversion. The passage sets up for this surprise. Peter asks, why did you call for me? Cornelius, why did you call for me? And Cornelius's answer is an angel came, his bright shining man, and he told me to come, come see you. What is he saying? What is, what is Cornelius saying the answer to that question is? It's God. God set this up. And Peter would say the same thing. He said, well, me too. God gave me a vision of unclean animals and told me to eat an unclean animal and then said nothing's unclean. And, and, and then he said to go to this place and see you. 
So what God is doing is setting up a blind date for both of these people, right? Because this is what he's doing. He's setting up this blind date and they both show up and they say, well, why are you here? Well, God sent me. Well, God sent me too. Okay, well, let's try to think about this. And then Cornelius says, what are you going to tell me? And then Peter opens his mouth and tells him the gospel. The point of that, the point of that is that God sets up every conversion. He is the source of every conversion. Now, in Acts 10, it's obvious. But in the conversions that you're a part of, sometimes it's not so obvious. In fact, sometimes you think you actually have a hand in someone else's conversion. That you were the one that helpfully converted them. It seems like that sometimes, especially when we're talking to our friends and neighbors about the gospel and we do such a good job with it that they become Christians. But we should never forget that the source of every conversion is God. Now, this passage really fleshes this out. Let's look at what Peter says in verse 36. He talks about 36. He talks about the prophecy of Jesus. 37 and 38. He talks about the life of Jesus. 39, 40, and 41. He talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. 42 and 43. The judgment and the salvation and forgiveness of sins. And then we get to verse 44. And look at these words. While Peter was still speaking. In the midst of his speaking. He didn't explain the gospel to Cornelius. Put a period on the sentence. And then say. Now you have to become a Christian. It was while he was still speaking. In, in chapter 11 when Peter retells this story to other friends of his. You know what he says? As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and he was converted. So right in the middle of what he was saying, what does that show to Peter? That shows Peter that what he's saying is secondary. The source of conversion is not Peter. And the Holy Spirit will come upon anyone at any time he pleases. So you sit down with a friend at work. Let me explain the gospel. Did you know that there's a God and you're not him? Well, did you know that sin separates you? Boom, they're converted. And you're like, wait, I didn't get to the part of Jesus. I didn't talk about the the sin. Wait, it doesn't matter. God will convert someone when he pleases, not when we please. Now, that's an amazing thing that we see in Acts chapter 10. Here's the thing about Acts. I took this class at Reformed Theological Seminary, and I was challenged by the professor to go through every conversion in Acts and try to find a formula of conversion. First, the person hears the God's word. Then they go away convicted. Then they're brought back and given salvation. And they're cut to the heart. And they ask, what now shall I do now that I understand all of these things? The answer, repent. And so they repent. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Like a step-by-step, five steps to conversion kind of thing, you know? It happens that way in Acts 2, by the way. That's kind of what happens in Acts 2 when Peter preaches his first sermon. But it never happens again in Acts. The only pattern in, in conversion in the book of Acts is that there's no pattern in conversion in the book of Acts. There's no formula. It's God who sets things up. And you don't always know where you are in the stream of things. 
You could be the first person out of a hundred. Or you could be the only person. You just don't know where God has you. Now, there's a couple of points that, that we'll, we'll refer to here. The point of this surprise for Peter is, if you're here today and you're seeking after God as Cornelius is, don't be afraid that you'll miss it. Don't be anxious in your heart that, oh, I've got I've to learn the truth and I don't know what. If you want to know God, truly, if you want to know God, God has already drawn you. He's already working in you. So don't be afraid. It's there. God is going to move you. He is the author of our faith and he is the finisher or perfecter of our faith. But also, Christians, you shouldn't be anxious either. You should be excited and full of energy and go ahead and have your plans. I encourage you. Have a plan. Have a five steps to eternal life or have your four spiritual laws ready to go. But I guarantee you God's going to surprise you just like he surprised Peter. And that's where the lesson is. That's where we learn God is in control. Not only do we know the surprising source of this conversion, but we look And we find a surprising method. If God is the source of conversion, what's Peter doing there? Why doesn't God just convert on his own? He would do such a better job, wouldn't he? I mean, Peter's got all these problems. Peter's confused. He doesn't know everything. He's a fisherman. I don't know. Whatever the problem is for Peter, same for you and me. We are imperfect communicators of the gospel. But here's the catch. God wants to use Peter. But you know, that's not even enough, is it? I mean, we have this idea in our minds as Christians that if God wants to use me, he will. And if he doesn't, he'll find another way. But here's the point of Acts 10. God refuses to convert without human participation. He can. He just won't. That seems weird. That seems strange. That is a shock. Think about it. Think about it. Can you think of a conversion in any scriptural passage in Acts where there isn't human participation? Can anyone here say God converted them absent from all human participation? You might say, well, what about the guy on the deserted island and all he has is the Bible and he reads the Bible and he comes to faith. There's no humans there to tell him anything. He just reads the Bible and he comes to faith and he's converted. Well, who wrote the Bible? Chosen men. Haley says this. Chosen men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. She didn't say exactly that, but that's her catechism. She says that. And it's true. It's true. The Bible is 100% God and 100% man. It's weird how it comes together, but that's true. How else? How many, how many of us can stand and say we have never heard from a human, but we're converted? Nobody. Even Paul. You, you might cite Paul the Apostle. And you might say that he has a road to Damascus conversion. That's not true. If you read Acts 9, it's a road to Damascus blinding. And that's all it is. He goes to Damascus with scales on his eyes. And just like in Acts 10, this guy gets a a vision and and God says, go see Paul. And the guy says, Ananias says, I don't want to. He's mean. He puts people in prison. 
He says, go see him anyway. And he does, and he prays over him. And then the scales fall off. And what does it say in Acts 9? Look it up. The Holy Spirit came on Paul. Only when Ananias came. God insists on using people. Now, this is an odd thing. God, why do you do this? Why do you insist on using us for something only you can do? Why do you do that? You have to ask that question. Because God's the source of conversion, but he insists on using us. Here's a clue. If you look at Cornelius, if you look at other conversions, you begin to notice something interesting. Not every conversion is the same. Remember, we said that. There's no formula to this. But there's a reason why not every conversion is the same. Some take minutes. Some conversions take years. Some take a hundred Christians, witnesses. Some take only one. Some are converted listening to radio. Some a song, some a play. Some get cancer. Some hear a preacher. Why is it different for every person? Well, not only the means of communication are different from conversion to conversion. The, the thing that draws the seeker in is different as well. For some, it's a physical danger and their need. For a strong God to save them. For some it's sadness. And a loving God to come alongside them. Others it's an inexpressible joy that they just can't explain. Some fall in love with a human being. That draws them to the throne of grace. What's great about this person is really God. And when they catch that they convert. So for every person it's different. Now why is that? Drive that point home. Why does God design conversions to be different one from another the answer is interesting who's converted in acts 10 we'd all say cornelius but really is that all you see i think we could put a title on acts 10 peter's conversion god converts us through others conversions as we watch as we participate in this gospel the, the the gospel comes in in one small point maybe it's physical danger and that gets me converted but that's not all the gospel is going to leak into every part of my life and it's going to come into physical danger but it's going to it's going to solve the problem of sadness it's going to solve the problem of a lack of wisdom or whatever it is it's going to go all over my life and leak into every part of my life and the method the surprising method that God uses to put the gospel everywhere in your life is conversion is conversion being a part of someone's conversion will teach you things about the gospel you never knew before and flip side, if you're not a part of someone's conversion, you won't learn the deeper parts of the gospel relevant to your own life. Do you want to learn about God? Watch a conversion. Well, no, watching is for children. Participate in a conversion as God intended it. Which knows God more, do you think? The seminary professor who never leaves the campus. Or the uneducated missionary who sees hundreds of conversions across many cultures. Which one is going to understand? That's a good question to ask. I won't answer it. 
because you need both. You need, you need both. But, but conversion is a tool God uses, and he's using that. You can see it in Acts 10. Peter grows in his knowledge of the gospel. So what specifically does Peter learn? And that's the third surprise here in Acts 10. It's a surprising result. Once someone is converted, it's a surprise. Conversion is both spiritual or psychological and sociological. Because we see that Peter in verse 45 The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them, two things, speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. No one, no one of us could stand in Cornelius' way of being baptized with water. Why? They've received the Holy Spirit. How does Peter know that? Think about it. Acts chapter 8, Peter went to Samaria, and he encountered Philip's converts in Samaria. And one of them was Simon, and he was a phony. It looked like he converted, but he didn't really. And Peter said, Simon, you have no part of the gospel with us. And he departed sad and dejected. He rejected him. Because he said that's not an authentic conversion. So Peter understands that not every conversion is real. He's looking for what's real. And what does he see? Two things. First, they praise God. Second, they speak in tongues. Authentic conversion. Now, what about that? What does that mean? Why does that convince Peter that the Holy Spirit has fallen on these people? Well, let's look at each of them. Praise God. Let's, it's a real quick look at this idea. This is a spiritual or psychological change within the person. Uh, many psychologists say that at the bottom of every human being is this drive, this foundational drive uh, for one of three things. I've read this before. You probably have too. Power, approval, and comfort. Power, you want to control things out of fear. Approval, you want to be accepted. And you want to be comfortable. You strive for those. I remember a guy who I was in a show with. Um, Some of you don't know, I was in the theater when I was in college. And I was in a show, West Side Story. Uh, I was riff. It was quite an embarrassing moment for me, I guess, if you see pictures of that. But, uh, but I was Riff, and I sang and danced on stage. And at one point during West Side Story, Riff gets killed. He's the leader of the Jets. He gets killed by the leader of the Sharks named Bernardo. So Bernardo stabs me, and for 50 times on stage, every four, four nights a week for a run, I died on stage. And I got so good at dying. I'm like, oh, I'm going to die. Oh, I'm dead. It was just not a surprise for me at all. But I had to make it look like a surprise. So I died. I'm, I'm dead. And then Tony, as you know, if you've seen the, the play or the musical, he stabs Bernardo. So Bernardo, Bernardo's dead. And everybody scatters. The police comes. The lights go down. And this guy, Bernardo, and I go outside in the back. And we have about 30 minutes before the end of the show. We got to know each other pretty well in that 30 minutes times 50. I mean, we talked a lot. And you know what? I learned some things about this guy. He wanted to be famous. He was struggling from this foundational drive called psychology so called acceptance he wanted to be accepted by people and it just drove him to be in the theater it drove him to say the things that he did it drove him to become a better singer actor dancer it just it was his life he wanted to be famous above all things he wanted the applause of people and then i shared one day i shared the gospel with him and it was amazing lights came on 
He's like, God loves me? This is great. He came to church. And you should have seen the guy. I mean, he's a new Christian. He's like, hallelujah. He was like singing at the top of his lungs and just loving it. And it was great. And he told the pastor, great sermon. Everything was, his life was changed. And he was telling people about God. It was this great conversion. And I'm looking at this going, whoa, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Well, he went up to the worship leader at the church I was going to. It was a small church. And he said, can I sing? Can I lead singing? Can I sing an offering? I want to sing. And the guy's like, well, are you, who are you? And he explained, and you know, he's a new Christian. Well, let's give this a couple of months. You know, let's, let's not rush into things. And, and he was kind of turned off by that. So he went to another church that had a rocking band and lights. And he was on stage within a month. And he was, the, he was one of the worship leaders. And this worship band was going to make a CD. And when he was overlooked for another vocal lead for that CD, guess what happened? He left the church. Didn't come back to my church. In fact, when I revisited with him, he was anti-Christ. He was anti-Jesus. He wasn't the anti-Christ. He was, uh, he, he was against Christianity. He was the anti-Christ. <laughs> and I led him to Christ. I'm responsible. <laughs> that is not true. Please don't write that down. No, but he, he fell away from the Lord. And I'm thinking, well, what happened here? Can you fall away from the Lord? Is it what? what? He, you know what happened? He never really transformed. He looked like he went from irreligion to religion to immorality to morality, right? From not being a Christian to being converted. But he wasn't converted at all. He was just coming into a place that he thought he could become famous, accepted, just couldn't get over that. And when he saw that he couldn't, he was going off to another way to find that acceptance. That's what's going on in in Acts 10. Peter says, aha, authentic conversion. My friend never praised God, truly praised God. When the heart, when your heart's most basic desire and basic worship is God above self. That is true conversion. And that's what Peter saw in Cornelius and all those who were saved in Acts chapter 10. But that's not all, is it? They spoke in tongues. What do you do with that? What does that mean? We just skip over that and okay, let's just go home now. They spoke in tongues. It's true. They spoke in tongues. And that was part of what Peter said made him like this is authentic. It convinced him. We have to slow down a little bit. We have to know, you have to understand that conversions are not formulaic. Tongues is not a necessary step in the process of conversion. Okay? It's, it's not when, when Paul was converted, there was no tongues. When Lydia was converted, there was no tongues. When the Holy Spirit came upon Paul, no tongues. When the Holy Spirit came upon all the apostles at the end of Acts chapter 4, there were no tongues. When all the converts in Samaria, when, when they became Christians, no tongues. You don't see tongues anywhere, but you see it here in Acts 10. A little shocking, a little surprising. You have to ask why, what's going on here? And, and this is where the lesson is. It's a sociological change. That's what's going on here. Do you see it? When Peter in in chapter 11, chapter 11, Peter tells this to other people. And it's 
11 verse 15, where he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. What beginning? What's he talking about there? And then it dawns on you. It's Pentecost. It's it's a second Pentecost. It's part of Peter's conversion story that Pentecost and the gospel is for these people here, but it's also for these people here as well. Let's read from Acts. I'm going to read this real quick. In Acts 2, verse 5, it says, Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't we... Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia. I mean, it goes through all these nations, all these different languages, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring wonders of God in our own language. That's not the way of Islam, by the way. The language of Islam is Arabic. You can't translate, or you shouldn't, the Quran to any other language. But not so in Christianity. There's no culture derivative of the gospel. There's no language that's foundational to the gospel. There's no basic culture or language where the gospel comes from. It is cross-language, cross-cultural. And that's the lesson that Peter learns here. The gospel is not tied down. It is unleashed. All nations, all peoples, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, This is the lesson of the conversion of Peter, of Cornelius. So remember, every single conversion teaches us something about God's glory, his character, his love, his mercy, his justice, his anger, his methods, his lack of favoritism. Are you learning about God? God forbid you to limit your learning of God to a classroom. The lesson is to get out there. To go, participate in the way that God intended you to participate in conversions and see this glory Peter is talking about firsthand. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would surprise us and that you would forgive us for putting you into a box. Neat in orderly keeping your gospel on a leash. We pray together that you might give each one of us in this room an opportunity this week to participate in someone's conversion and then bring us back together next week to tell the wonderful war stories that we might praise your name even more than we did before. Father, we give you our time, we give you our resources, our money, we give you our hearts. May you do with them as you please, for your kingdom, for the sake of Jesus.